All right, my friends, if you have your Bibles now, please open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Last week, we, we entered into this next section of this letter, which has to, be, has to do with being led by the Spirit of God and towards living our Christian lives, not, not in a carnal way, not in a fleshly way, but in a spiritual and Christ-centered way. This next section encourages us to live in a way that does not seek to promote ourselves above each other, but in a way that is marked by love and by service towards one another, particularly when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Today's text has to do with the Lord's Supper, why we take the communion meal each and every week. Redeemer Fellowship, I do not think that it is an overstatement to say that today's passage may be the most important part of this entire series. I know that's a big statement to make, but, but as we have seen together, 1 Corinthians is all about unity. This letter has been called the epistle of unity, and we have seen this together over and over. Paul has pleaded with the Corinthians and with us to be united, to not allow worldly wisdom and secular ideas to separate and to divide us as God's people. This is of utmost importance for the Christian church and for each local church family. They will know us by our love, Jesus said. They will know us by our unity with each other, despite our many differences from each other. And Paul has helped us to consider how to be united, to center not on secondary issues, but to focus on the gospel of God's grace alone, to preach Christ and Him crucified alone, to not have pet theologies, to not allow worldly ideas and identities, to not allow any source of worldly wisdom or power to become our identity more than Christ and Him crucified. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? So that your faith, and in the context of the letter, your unity might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This has been, and this continues to be, Paul's burden for us. And as he enters into this next section of this letter and begins to talk about when we gather together on Sunday mornings, he centers in now on a huge issue within the Corinthian church. And this issue is the misunderstanding and misapplying the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians were not coming to the Lord's table as they should. They were coming with disunity. And this is not good. Paul wants, Paul needs to adjust them. Paul wants to help them. He wants to help us to understand how the Lord's Supper is a gift. And it is a gift not just to remember the Lord's death, but to remember a primary purpose of the Lord's death, which is to bring about greater unity among God's people. And therefore, I do not believe that this is, I, I, therefore, I believe that this is one of the most important sermons that we will hear together this year. The Lord's Supper is so important, but the Lord's Supper is often misunderstood and misapplied. And if we misunderstand and misapply the Lord's Supper, we as a local church family are going to suffer greatly as a result. And so we, we need not only to be envisioned for the idea of unity, we need God's help to maintain unity even when it becomes 
hard. And that is one of the primary reasons we are called to celebrate communion together, to maintain our unity. This is what we're called to, and this is what God through Paul is going to help us to see together this morning. Let's begin by reading the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. People love it when things run well, don't they? When things run smoothly, we are happy. When things don't break down, life is wonderful, but none of us like it when things start falling apart. Just within the last month, my family has had to repair or replace a car battery, two tires, a broken shower head, and a washing machine. Maintenance is not fun, but maintenance is necessary. Good things don't just stay good. Because of sin in this world, things regularly fall apart, and this requires that we give careful attention to their careful maintenance. Now, some people are really good at this. Everett Petit diligently schedules into his calendars to change his wife's windshield wiper blades every year. Meanwhile, yeah, you should applaud. That's impressive. Meanwhile, because of a a broken seal, my wife, every time it rains, gets rained on as we're driving down the road. Regular times of maintenance are very helpful. And friends, the same is true for our unity as a church family. As kind as God has been to us over these last four years, 
As united as we seem to be by God's grace, even our blood-bought unity as a church requires careful attention and careful maintenance. Otherwise, it will fall apart. And my friends, this is in significant part why we have the Lord's Supper. This meal has been given by the risen Christ as a way to conduct regular maintenance on our souls and on our church family. To consider where things have begin, begun to rot, where things have begun to fall apart, and to remember the gospel which is able to heal and to make whole again. The Lord's Supper is key to God helping us to love each other well and to maintaining our unity together. The main idea for our message this morning is this. Weekly communion reminds us of the gospel and fosters unity as a church family. Weekly communion reminds us of the gospel and fosters unity as a church family. And we have three points this morning. Point number one, the disunity among us. That's in verses 17 to 22. Point number two, the gospel that unites us. That's in verses 23 to 26. And then point number three, the meal that reminds us. That's in verses 27 to 34. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, the disunity among us. Disunity might be one of the easiest things to overlook in our lives. Particularly in our day and age, we have a tendency to want to move quickly beyond conflict and to act, at least outwardly, as if everything is okay, right? Right? It's easy today to find a new group of friends when you've been hurt. It's easy to find a new fellowship group when different people have offended you. It's easy to sit on the other side of church from those people. It's easy to unfollow or disconnect from people and say that you're just doing it for your mental health when in reality we really just don't want to do the difficult work of pursuing unity and forgiveness together. My guess is that for most of us in this room, if asked directly, we would say that there's little disunity in our lives. But I wonder whether that is because there truly is no disunity or because we're just really good at living our lives around the disunity and acting as if things are okay. Well, friends, Paul seems to suggest, at least for the Corinthians, and I do believe for us as well, that there is likely more division among us than we tend to think. Look at verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Oh boy, buckle up, Corinthians. Paul's going to say something hard. I do not commend you, he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying that when they gather together as a church family, the, the good that is supposed to come about is actually not happening at all. In fact, it's the worse. Why? Why is it the worse? How are their gatherings not for the better, but for the worse. Look at verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And this should not surprise us at all. The lack of unity in Corinth is a primary reason why Paul has written this letter. It actually might be the reason Paul wrote this letter. The, the word difference here is the same word that we took weeks to consider back in chapter 1. It means to have factions or to be separated from other groups of people and to be opposed to one another. It's the, it's the same word as in chapter 1, but the example of difference or division is different. In chapter 1, if you remember, Paul was correcting them from being divided around leadership. Some loved Paul, some loved Apollos, some loved Peter. That division was all about leadership and styles and personalities. 
But this division in chapter 11, it seems, is more about economic status within the church. Look at verse 20. Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not, he says. It seems that in that day, when the Lord's Supper would have been a much bigger event, it would have been a meal almost every time that they shared it together, it seems that the amount or the quality of food and drink that was enjoyed in that meal was based in some part on social status. So at the same church potluck, the rich were able to eat and drink lavishly, but the poor were left with only the crumbs. This is like us determining how many hot dogs you get on Hot Dog Sunday based on how much you tie to the church each week. That's not, that's not a good way to go about it. And through these unhelpful distinctions, factions, understandably, were being formed. Divisions were coming about. A meal that was supposed to be a symbol of unity is actually a source of division. And that's why in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul says, it's not even the Lord's table that you're partaking in. You think that you're partaking in the Lord's Supper, but it's not that because what you are doing is so contrary to what the true Lord's Supper is supposed to be. It's a source of division here rather than unity. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a family meal. We are called to welcome each other as we partake of the meal together. Paul says down in verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That word wait can be translated a few different ways. It can also be translated welcome or be hospitable towards one another. And I think that's a better interpretation here. It has to do with being hospitable and kind and loving. So the issue was not the timing of their eating. The issue was that they were focused on the food that they got for themselves and they were not sharing. The issue is that they were eating in an unwelcoming and unloving way. And he says that to not welcome each other, to eat in a disunited way, is to eat judgment on yourself. It's actually an indictment of your faith in Jesus. According to verse 19, look at verse 19. According to verse 19, unity within the church is a gauge as to who is genuine in their faith and who is not. Paul's not able to commend them because they are acting as if they are united when in actuality they are divided. And friends, even though we might be a little bit more cordial than the Corinthians were, I'm pretty sure, thankfully, that there are no major factions in our church and nobody's flaunting their economic status even though we might hide it a little better, it does not mean that there is not disunity still among us. If, if we've learned anything from Paul throughout this letter thus far, it should be that we should be suspicious of our own hearts, that we should perceive enough about ourselves and our pride that we are willing to admit that there are areas of division among us. Maybe it is based on personality differences. Maybe it is because of offenses that we have against each other. Maybe there's ethnic or cultural differences that make us want to only be with people who are like us. Maybe it's a generational difference. If, 
If we've learned anything throughout this letter, we should be able to admit that division is more common than we might want to admit. And we should be able to see how beautiful it is when we are able to work through those differences in order to pursue unity with those who are made in God's image and saved by His great grace. Church, let me encourage you this morning. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to be overly uptight, but I want to exhort all of us to do honest heart work before the Lord and before each other. Who are we divided from within our church family? Who do we avoid? Who do we have unresolved conflict with? Who have we gossiped about with others? Who have we not forgiven? Who do we need to ask forgiveness from? It may not be based on financial status. It may not be based on who's your favorite leader like it was for the Corinthians. But if we are all honest, I imagine that we can all think of someone who, is not, who we have not loved as well as Christ has called us to love. We're actually going to spend time at the end of the sermon praying about that and thinking about that together. Unity with other Christians, even Christians that we are different from. Unity within the local church is a fundamental marker of the sincerity of our faith and our trust in Jesus. Look again at verse 19. Paul says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul seems to be acknowledging that division is almost unavoidable. Why? Well, because we're human and we're sinners, and so we will always have conflict between us. But, but God is using the presence of division and conflict in our midst to reveal to us who is genuine in their faith. True, sincere, genuine faith in Jesus will lead to an earnest pursuit of unity together. Why? Because the gospel that we celebrate is intended to unite people together. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, the gospel that unites us. I think that we often forget that one of the first fruits of the gospel is unity. Unity between us and God himself and unity with each other. Particularly here in America, we, we can often think of our Christian faith and our, our baptism and, and the Lord's Supper as things that we get to celebrate for ourselves. And, and they certainly are that. Our faith in Jesus has given us a, a personal relationship with God. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what God has done for us. Christian, God has done great things for your life. In Psalm 103, King David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He is recalling how good God has been to him personally. And church, we each individually have reason to bless the Lord as well, don't we? We each have personal stories of his faithfulness. But our redemption is not merely personal. Oh no, it's not. Our redemption is also corporate. It is something that is intended to change who we are individually and who we are all together corporately. Look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now Paul begins to talk about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But, but what I want you to notice is that first word, for. That's a causal conjunction. Paul is explaining why he cannot commend the Corinthians' practice of the Lord's Supper as we saw in the verses leading up to this. Why can't he commend them? Well, because of what the Lord's Supper is. It is a celebration of the gospel that we love. Look at these beautiful words. 
Church, may these words never become wrote to us, Redeemer Fellowship. May we always marvel at these things. Paul says, the Lord delivered the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We love those words. We celebrate those words today. This is the gospel in short form. We remember him together today. We remember that that though he was in the very form of God, though he had no equal, though he had no rivals, though in his holiness we could not even lift our eyes to behold his majesty and his strength, that though fully separate from us because of his holiness and because of our sin, he took on flesh. He became human. He became like us. He walked among us. Why did he take on flesh? So that his flesh, so that his physical body might be broken. He took on a physical body so that as the perfect, sinless God-man substitute for his people, he could stand in our place so that he could bear the wrath that we deserve for our sins. He put on flesh So that as we see the flesh of his back torn to shreds by the whips of the soldiers, and as we see the flesh of his hands and his feet pierced with nails, and as we hear his lungs gasping for air to breathe on that cross, as we see his body tormented and his blood spilt out, we might remember that all of that was done because he loves you. Friend, he loves you. He loves you. He has done great things for you. If you're a Christian, he has died for you. Even while you were his enemy, even with your long history, even with your many mistakes and failures, he died so that all of those mistakes, all of your sins, all of your pride, selfishness, haughtiness, lust, anger, materialism, all of the things that deserve God's just judgment might be forgiven because he paid the price for those things. He absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. He loves you. He's done great things for you. I think about all that he has done for me. Proud, arrogant, lustful, angry, selfish, idolatrous me. I deserved the wrath of God, but he's given me grace. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He has lifted my life up from the pit and crowned me with steadfast love and mercy. Church, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? God has done great things for you. And according to verse 26, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim, we declare, we preach through this meal what he has done for us. This meal proclaims the gospel. But church, let us not forget how Paul started verse 23. That word for, it ties all that we remember in the gospel, not just to what God has done for us individually, but what he has done for us corporately. Following the logic of this text, Paul cannot commend their practice of the Lord's Supper because how they are doing it in a divided way is contrary to what we remember in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance of grace to me, 
It's a remembrance of God's grace to we, to us. Look down at verse 27. When Paul starts talking about how to partake in the Lord's Supper in a right way, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. But, but how? How do we partake of the bread or the body of Christ in an unworthy manner like he's saying here? Well, look down at verse 29. Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We eat in an unworthy manner when we do not discern the body. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean when we don't discern the significance of Christ's body being broken for us, which was to save and to unite us together. And I certainly think that that is part of it. But I tend to think that Paul means here is that we eat in an unworthy manner when we eat the bread, which resembles the physical body of Christ, while not discerning the corporate body of Christ, the church, without discerning the importance of being unified together. And I think that's true because in chapter 10, verse 16, if you remember, Paul says, the bread that we break isn't not a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So, so as we partake of one bread, which represents the body of Christ, we do so as one body of believers together. I also think it's true because in chapter 12, Paul th says things like, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. The gospel and our baptism has, has joined us together despite our many differences, whether ethnic differences or economic differences or personality differences or age differences. We are one body with many members. It's kind of like being a real family. Different people, but united together in a home. You may have noticed that I have almost my entire family here today. We are having a small family reunion this weekend at our house, and so my mom and my dad and my sister Alina and my four brothers and their families are all here this morning. And if you have seen my brothers, you know that we look very, very much alike. In fact, my brother Elliot and I look more like twins than most real twins do, even though there's two years difference. I told the other pastors this week I should have him come and preach and see if anybody noticed at all. I'm not sure that you would have. We look that much alike. So one thing, if you say hi to me today and I don't say hi back, it was them, not me. I promise. But even though we all look alike, we're very different people. Tim, my oldest brother, he is the smartest out of all of us. He is legitimately brilliant, and I hated him for that growing up. Elliot is the happiest out of all of us. He is the most joyful person that I know in this world. He also might be the hardest worker, though I think we all work pretty hard. Jonathan is not only the tallest, but he's also the most compassionate and thoughtful, incredibly compassionate man. David is by far the coolest out of all of us. He lives in California. He runs his own business. He does jujitsu. He's just a, a cool guy. I am the dumbest out of all of us but I'm the best looking, and I, I have the best bald head out of all of them, and there are a lot to choose from. But listen, even though we are so different from each other, we're family. Listen, 
How silly would it be if when we came together this afternoon for our family reunion and for the big meal during lunch this afternoon, instead of eating all together and celebrating who we are together, we regulated each family to a different room in the house. Tim and his family in the, in the family room. Me and my family in the dining room. We'll put David out in the shed. <laughs> Wouldn't it be ridiculous if we did that, and then we started yelling back and forth at each other at, at, at how different we are and the, the ways that we're better from each other. Church, that is what Paul is correcting the Corinthians for. And that's what he oftentimes needs to correct us for. Unity is so important. It's the same way that it makes, in the same way that it makes no sense to have a family reunion and to eat in different rooms and to yell at each other in that way. So it makes no sense to celebrate the gospel that unites us by celebrating the Lord's Supper while being divided from others within the church. It makes no sense. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it actually is a contradiction to our faith in Jesus. To not care about disunity is to show a lack of genuineness in our faith in Christ. It indicts us. And so, how kind that God has given us a practice each and every week in order to conduct maintenance on our souls and on our unity together. This is what Paul says the Lord's Supper is for. And that brings us to our third and to our final point. Point number three, the meal that reminds us. Maintenance doesn't always seem fun or necessary. It is almost always inconvenient to get your oil changed. It doesn't seem worth the money to have your furnace service when it's running perfectly fine. Maintenance is not always what we want to do, but maintenance is always important. The lack of maintenance is not only unwise, but it will lead to headaches down the road, and it can also be extremely dangerous. To never change the tires on your car, for example, is a very dangerous thing. Friends, Paul knows that the lack of care to maintain our unity within the local church is a dangerous thing as well. We already saw in verse 19 how division shows a lack of genuineness in our relationship with Jesus, but that's not all that Paul says here. Now look at verses 29 to 32. Paul says that to eat without discerning the unity of the local church is to eat judgment on yourself. And, and by that, he doesn't, he doesn't mean ultimate judgment from God. He means that at times the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Verse 30 says that this is why many of us are weak and ill and some have died. Church, that is a sobering and honestly a quite frightening verse. It seems that the lack of unity within the church has led the Lord to lovingly discipline some of his people. He allows sickness and pain and even death to touch us at times as a way to sober us to the seriousness of the situation. Christian, did you know that the lack of unity and peace in your life can have that effect on your life? Quarreling and arguing and bickering and being decisive, it can cause spiritual, emotional, and even physical unwellness. Disunity is bad for our health. But listen, God does not allow us to, to feel the severity of our quarreling just in order to judge us like he judges the world. No, but rather because he wants to lovingly spare us from the pain of the world. Look at verse 32. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord in this way, we, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
And so like a loving young father who sees his children fighting back and forth, so God at times disciplines us so that we might learn to love each other more. So now look at verse 33. He says, So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for, or I would translate that, welcome one another. Paul says, come together for the Lord's Supper in unity. So that this meal will not be for judgment. So that the Lord does not need to correct you because of your disunity. Church, it's very clear from this text, isn't it? It's very clear from this text that a primary purpose of the Lord's Supper is to foster unity among his people. The Lord's Supper is a a gift that God allows us to, to keep short accounts regarding our quarrels and our conflicts and our areas of division. The Lord's Supper each week is like the light on your dashboard that tells you that it's time for an oil change. The Lord's Supper creates a healthy weekly rhythm in our lives through which God wants to do maintenance on our souls. But how? How does God intend to do that maintenance? Is there something magical about this meal that we celebrate? What about the Lord's Supper just causes us to be united? Well, according to the text... The communion meal fosters greater unity among us when we come to the table having discerned the body. Unity is fostered among us when we do not just run to this meal assuming that everything is okay in our lives, but rather when we carefully and thoughtfully and intentionally perceive the health of the corporate body. How do we do that? Do we need to perceive whether every relationship in the church is good or not? No, that's not our responsibility. We can't do that for everyone around us. We discern the body when, according to verse 28, we examine ourselves. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, is a time of maintenance. Or rather, the time before the communion meal is a time of maintenance. Paul is inviting us to examine our hearts, to examine our lives in order to discern whether there are divisions among us so that we might come and eat in a worthy manner. The local church will be united when each member of the church examines their own hearts and applies the gospel to their own souls and does not allow conflict and quarreling to remain unaddressed. Listen to this quote from my dad, Tim Shorey, who just wrote a book on this entire topic. He says this. He says, Holy communion is a peacemaking exercise. Among other purposes, Holy communion is meant to lead to healthier relationships. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that our Lord Jesus Christ has provided a blessed and shared patch of peace, a small plot of common ground where hostilities can pause and enemies can meet. It is the communion table. Holy communion is meant to promote, restore, and strengthen peace among us. Through what it is and what it requires, communion can lead to shalom. Through what it is, a proclamation of the gospel and a reminder to us of Christ, and through what it requires of us, examining our own hearts, communion will foster peace among us. And so, Redeemer Fellowship, we must come to the table with discernment. We must come to the table thoughtfully, having examined our own hearts. What does that mean? Well, there are several things that it means for us. 
we need to first acknowledge that this weekly meal is more than just an individual experience as Christians. It is a ecclesiastical, it is a church event. This is why, even though this message is not about baptism, it's important to see how connected the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper really are. It is theologically backwards to take communion if you have never been baptized. Being baptized does not save us, but being baptized is how we visibly identify with Jesus and with his church. And so to take communion without having been baptized is a, is a little backwards. Theologically, we should be baptized before we take communion because we need to be visibly united to the body of Christ before we can take the meal that declares our unity. It also means that we need to examine our hearts as we come. Redeemer family, let's not allow this meal to ever become an empty ritual. Amen? Let's celebrate this meal for all that it is. And let's allow our lives and our relationships to be changed by the gospel that we are celebrating together. What does that mean? It means that we need to regularly, weekly examine our hearts. Friend, it means that on Saturday night... Spend quiet time or Sunday morning or at some other point in the week. You should pause. We should pause and take time to prayerfully consider where we are in conflict with other Christians, where we are divided, where we have sinned and need to ask for forgiveness, where we have been sinned against and need to extend forgiveness. Church, we're so confident in the gospel by God's grace that we are willing to do this sort of honest work among us. Christian, you are so secure in Jesus and his work on your behalf is so glorious that you don't need to act as if everything's okay on the outside. You don't need to ignore conflict in your life or just push it under the rug or just move to a different group of friends. No, because of the work of the gospel, because of your security in Jesus Christ, you're able to look at conflict and deal with conflict for the the glory of God but that takes time and that takes humility and that takes courage but it's so important in fact it's so important that we're going to take time at the end of this sermon in just a moment to prayerfully consider where we lack unity in our lives it's actually so important that we are going to start sending out a text reminder at different points in the week each week in order to remind us that the Lord's Supper is coming on Sunday morning and that we should take time to prayerfully consider how we can pursue greater unity together. Friends, when those texts come in, please don't just quickly delete or unsubscribe from them. Please take time to prayerfully examine your own heart. Identify where disunity is present in your life and take steps to pursue unity with those around you. Even here on Sunday mornings, Don't just come down the aisle and take the elements as if it's an empty ritual. No, actively celebrate the gospel and actively discern if there's any area of your life that you need to repent of. One of the values of of doing processional communion like we do it, where everybody comes down to the front, one of the values is that it allows for some movement in the room. And so... If as we move towards communion and you realize or you are convicted by the Spirit that you are divided from someone in the church, don't be afraid to get up and go to that person in that moment before you take communion and say, would you forgive me for what I said? Or, I know we can't deal with all of this right now, but I want you to know I love you and I want to pursue reconciliation with you. Can we talk after this gathering or talk later this week? How beautiful would that be? 
if people get up and walk across the room and have that conversation over here and then enjoy the Lord's Supper together. What a, what a glorifying thing that would be to God. Now, not all conflict can be worked out in just two minutes. But church, we can examine our hearts enough and we can take the first step towards unity and towards reconciliation and then pursue it later on together. And there will be times when we are so convicted of disunity and when we are, have not pursued unity as we ought that we should refrain from communion altogether. If you are actively at odds, if you are opposed to a Christian in your life, it may be that you need to not take communion today at all. Stay in your seat and pray about how you can pursue unity with them this week and then celebrate the meal with us next week. Now, does all of that mean that we should never take communion if we have any small disagreement in our lives? No, we're, we're always going to have disagreements. We're going to be in arguments, even with our spouse on the way into work. Some of you are there today, and we're like, should we take communion or not? It's going to happen. We're going to get into arguments like that. But, but if our heart is, is opposed or against someone, if your heart is embroiled in conflict or in quarreling, there may be a reason to pause and to refrain. But you can quickly lean over to your spouse and say, I love you, let's work through this later, and let's celebrate Christ together in this moment. I want to invite the band to come up because we want to take time here before communion to do some of this together. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and at the end of the prayer, we're not going to go right into singing. The, the band is going to begin to play, but I want all of us just to, to sit quietly. Uh, let's sit quietly and let's prayerfully examine our hearts. If there is anyone that you are in conflict with, maybe, maybe write their name down as a reminder or put it into your phone so that later you have a bit of accountability or, or whisper to the person, can you ask me if I pursued reconciliation later this week? Maybe send a text to that person even right now and say, I'm sorry, can we talk? Maybe lean over to your spouse and ask for their forgiveness and confess your sins to them. All of those things will just be the first step towards unity, but they will be glorifying to Christ. Let's examine our hearts and let's come together through this meal to celebrate the grace of the gospel together and the hope that we have in Jesus. Let me pray.